Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Congressman Jim Himes from Connecticut. Jim serves on the House Financial Services Committee. Jim, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. I know you really care a lot about procurement and Defense Department. There's a lot of criticism about how government buys things. Before we get into this, what are some of the non-obvious good things about the process? It's a great topic, and it's one I've spent a ton of time working on in the last couple of years from my perch on the Intelligence Committee. It's not just that I'm sort of interested in the topic. We're in a world now where if the Pentagon and the intelligence community don't have access to some of the really innovative stuff that is happening in artificial intelligence, in all of the fields that are relevant to defense, and boy, that's a lot of the sort of technological fields, we will lose the race. We, for the first time in arguably three generations, we could be behind some of our, I don't want to use the word enemies, but people that we worry about out there. It's different than it was a generation ago, Oren, because when you're building a tank, there's not a lot of non-security uses for a tank. So if you have a company One of the major prime contractors that is really good at building tanks, fine, that's great. Problem is, if you're in a world where visual AI is now the distinguishing feature between countries' abilities to identify some sort of threat, and you're going to the primes, the Northrop Grumman's, the Lockheed Martin's of the world, that's not the business they're in. And you know who is in that business. It's seven person shops in places like Palo Alto and Boston, Massachusetts, the Pentagon and the IC are generally not set up to work with folks that don't build tanks the way we built tanks 50 years ago. Just to summarize, the critical thing here is to reshape the Pentagon in particular, but also the intelligence community to be able to quickly take advantage of the products and thinking and advances being made by the people who are listening to this podcast, as opposed to getting dreamed up in the skunk works at Lockheed Martin. There's been a whole bunch of things over the years from Incutel to DIU, all these things to try to get these agencies to be better at buying. Are they working? Are they not working? What do we need to do differently there? You're absolutely right. And let me clarify something here. This is not a competition necessarily between the primes, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, et cetera, and the other world. They're very, very good at what they do, but what they don't do is what we're talking about now, which is the stuff that is on the cutting edge, in particular of software. Yes, of course, there have been efforts. Inqtel is one of them, and there's actually some pretty amazing examples and some pretty amazing people that have operated inside the Department of Defense to try to urge a more innovative take on acquisition. Kessel Run comes to mind. Kessel Run is a program that's run by the Air Force in Boston, where they sit Air Force personnel right next to software developers. The problem is it hasn't scaled in any meaningful way. If you go visit Incutel, as I do from time to time, they're kind of focused on gadgets. What's a cool little receiver transmitter that might get hidden in a rock? They don't operate at the level of scale. The National Geospatial Agency, we now have, whatever the number is, thousands of terabytes of data flowing through our pipes. How do we find the needle in the haystack? That's a software problem. And it's a big software problem that Incutel is not particularly well configured to address. And then, by the way, two other issues I want to highlight for you. Then you've got the stove piping. We've made a lot of progress in terms of eliminating the stove piping. The Air Force is doing their thing. The Navy's doing their thing. CIA 
interacts with InQtel a lot more than other intelligence elements do. And then you've got culture. This is the classic problem in acquisition. If you're a one-star general or admiral, and you're really interested in getting that second star, are you going to take the risk on those six guys who have a really cool AI platform, but won't put on a tie? Or are you going to go with Lockheed Martin? Or, you know, so it's a complicated problem, but I do think we're making some progress. One of the things, if you just actually read a Sibber or something like that from like a defense department, they're focused on smaller ticket things, often like $300,000, $400,000 ticket type of stuff. It will almost always be a solution that they want. I just need this product or I need this tool or I need this algorithm or whatever. It's actually, I need this full solution, which very few seven-person companies can do. They're not in the solution business. They're in a very narrow product, almost like a feature that they're building kind of business. And then you're right, the bigger primes, they're great at solutions. That's what they do. Whereas when you sell to a commercial organization, any commercial organization, pick your favorite one, Starbucks, Walmart, et cetera, they almost never want solutions. They're building the solutions themselves. They're the project managers. They're doing it and they kind of build the tools. So is there a way to like move that mentality from we need the full solution to we're going to project manage the solution ourselves? I think you're asking exactly the right question. It's not so much the thing being bought, whether it's a tank or a piece of software or a satellite. It's more the framing of what you're actually doing. And here's where there's a massive distinction between software. Remember, we're in the world where software is eating everything. Everything about traditional acquisition processes is anathema to the way software is developed and used. So what's the traditional acquisition process? A bunch of guys with stars on their shoulder in the Pentagon take two years to draw up the specifications for a battleship or a tank or whatever. They take two or three years to do that. Now, maybe they do or maybe they don't actually talk to the sailors who are going to have to sail that battleship or whatever, but they take two or three years. And then they put a long bid out with all sorts of qualifications. And then somebody like Lockheed Martin builds it. It gets delivered seven years later. And it's good until things become obsolete. Software acquisition, and again, in the national security world, software is eating everything, is the opposite of that. Successful software development here, I certainly don't need to tell you or your listeners this, starts with the user and starts with the sergeant in an airbase and cutter who has a problem. And that sergeant then better sit next to the developer, who, by the way, refuses to put on a tie and maybe doesn't have a security clearance and describes the problem. And as anybody who has ever downloaded, and I hope that's everybody, a software patch onto their personal device or iPhone or whatever it is, you're never done buying software because there's patch after patch after patch. That whole acquisition structure is just anathema to the way things have always been done. And apart from culture and the way people frame acquisition, you've got technical issues like, again, if the world's leading expert on visual AI is my proverbial developer who's 27 years old, eats Hot Pockets, and may have a hard time getting a security clearance because he indulges in non-approved entertainment pharmaceuticals, how do we do that? And the answer is we better. We better learn to do that because this is where our technological edge is going to come from. You mentioned secrets. One of the things that is very interesting when talking to folks in national security is A lot of things that are quote unquote secret are known by everybody. Secret, like you need a clearance to talk about it, but everyone in the world 
knows that, for instance, the U.S. cares about Iran. There isn't anyone who doesn't know that. It's not a secret that we would want to know about what's going on inside of Iran or something like that. So there are certain things that are true secrets that, yes, you should need a clearance to get. But sometimes it seems like it becomes just very, very hard to sell into somebody because they classify almost everything as a quote unquote secret. The overclassification of stuff is a real problem in the government. I would draw a distinction, though, because in what we're talking about here, there are some very serious issues around capabilities. People imagine that secrets are more interesting than they are. And since I get to see them, some of them are, but most of them are actually not. We really don't want our adversaries to know capabilities. If you ask somebody in the Air Force what the top speed on an F-35 jet fighter is, they're going to say that's classified. What's the top speed on an air? That's classified. There's a good reason why we don't want people to understand our capabilities. This is why when President Trump throws out on Twitter a photograph that was taken by one of our satellites, Chinese and the Russians, that's a very good day for them because they can see our capabilities. If you are somebody who's helping develop those capabilities, you now know what they are. You know who the people are that are working on it. You may know how long a particular product or solution is likely to last. You're absolutely right that we have a real problem with overclassification, but it is also a very serious hurdle to be overcome if we're going to do this right. If I can make yet an additional plug for the importance of this, it's sort of an interesting comparison to how the Chinese are doing things. We now all acknowledge that we're either peers or near peers on pretty much every technological front with the Chinese. They're doing an old Los Alamos model of technological innovation. They're building entire cities that are dedicated to artificial intelligence in a very hierarchical way. And that can work. There was a reason that we came up with the atomic bomb faster than the Nazis did in the 1940s. But it's also not necessarily the best way to do technological innovation. And if we're not creating the most fertile ground for innovation and making sure that the Department of Defense and the intelligence community can be rapid adopters, we'll be fighting this fight with one arm behind our back. Sometimes it seems that the Defense Department, because they're so used to prescribing things like a tank or a very fast plane or something like that, they want this product that only a very small number of folks would use. And they prescribe a product which a small number of warfighters would really benefit from, but nobody else will. And it becomes very, very expensive to build that perfect product, whereas maybe the 70% solution, the 80% solution could be bought. One of my favorite Simpsons episodes is Homer designs this car and it's like the perfect car for him. And it's got like 15 cup holders everywhere. But in the end, nobody really wanted that car except for him. And I feel like it's the same thing with the defense department. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because if you were going to level a principled critique against the argument I'm making here. And this is a really important critique. I didn't adequately answer your very first question, which is what is a non-obvious challenge here? The entrepreneurial tech community out there, failure is a cause for celebration. Not absolutely, but the thing is fail fast. As you know, there are VCs who actually want to see what innovators and what business leaders have actually failed so that they know what that looks like. One of the reasons we're as innovative a place as we are is because you can fail and then start again. In certain aspects of national security, failure is not an option. So the ethic that says, hey, this is a solution that's going to work 98% of the time, 
if you're talking about an infantry unit that has been inserted into the hills of Afghanistan and a communications thing, sorry, 98% of the time is not okay. It is a powerful critique of what we're talking about here. And if I suppose if I were a thoughtful Pentagon person, I might say, look, we love that Silicon Valley celebrates as a value failing rapidly and stuff. But when lives are at stake and national security is at stake, 99.5% is not good enough. And that's something I think to be grappled with. Even when the government buys a normal, let's say just a typical piece of software or even a bunch of paper or something like that, there's like a procurement process that takes a long time. And then there's often like servicing the customer that has to be done in a very, very unique way. Let's say you're giving them data and you have to get them this data in this very unique way. And so you have a procurement sales process, which is more expensive for the company. And then you have a servicing process, which is more expensive. And so, of course, what companies do is they create new SKUs just for the government. And then that SKU costs 4X what their normal SKU does, because it does actually cost them 4X to service the customer. And so you have a scenario where the taxpayer is actually paying a lot more for a typical product, even though the government has scale and they have the economies of scale. So they should be paying less when they're selling to the government. How do we like switch that? It is absolutely true that for generations now, the national security apparatus as a whole has had a let's build it here mentality. And at a time when commercially available software, and by the way, not just software, I mean, commercially available satellites. Satellites are the interesting thing because satellites are very, very expensive and maybe exemplify what you're talking about. It's hundreds of millions of dollars to build one of these things many of which that are up there and don't perform as well as a Maxar community. So there is an institutional resistance to buying off the shelf stuff. And that needs to change, no question, with the proviso that the government is different. Any of the technology that you and I use, if it goes bad, it's an inconvenience. If we're dependent on Maxar for taking pictures of a particular region, they say, hey, we got a better offer. (laughs) That's not an inconvenience. What you need to do is you need to parse the not built here sentimentality from the specifications and attributes that are actually unique to national security. What is an inconvenience in the commercial world can be fatal, lethal, or a huge challenge to our national security. Whether it's satellites or whatever we're talking about here, software, it's not going to be as cheap, whatever it is, as a product that doesn't need a zero failure rate. But yeah, there's a lot of work that we can do around the culture As a member of Congress, I'll tell you, we're a big part of why the culture is not sufficiently open to the taking of risk. I've got 534 colleagues, 20% of whom would love to make their name by grilling some admiral on a failure and humiliating this person in public. One of the real challenges, it's funny, I was talking to Senator Warner about this just a couple of days ago. The acquisition stuff, over time, I bet you we can get that right. But how we create room for a risk-taking culture inside the national security apparatus, that's a tough one. I'd love to pivot the conversation a little bit to crypto. I know that is something you're really, really passionate about, interested in. I know you've said that it's time to start regulating cryptocurrencies as digital assets. How do we actually do that? Who's the regulatory body? How does that make it safer? What's the plan, do you think? Just to make sure we root the conversation in reality, it's not like, hey, I love regulation, let's regulate this new industry. It's more about, let's provide the certainty that allows businesses to, whether they're exchanges or somebody interested in developing a new stablecoin, 
to operate without the fear that comes from the ambiguity of, geez, if we do this, is the SEC going to sue us, et cetera? Prize Coinbase are like, please regulate us. And again, you need to parse the problem a little bit. The SEC and others are doing a pretty good job going after the outright fraud. If I'm telling you I'm selling you a German shepherd, but I'm actually selling you a Siamese cat, the government is going to go after you for that. But there are some really interesting questions that we struggle with around, for example, anonymity. Newspaper today, there's stories about how Coinbase is actually suing the government around the government's effort to shut down mixers, which provide anonymity on the blockchain. That's a super interesting conversation because you and I both know that there's going to be some really interesting things that come out of crypto assets, but it is also a very, particularly if you do have perfect anonymity, a very happy place for some very unsavory people. Yeah, we've got the technical work to say, okay, is it SEC that does this kind of stable coin? Is it CFTC? In some ways, that's sort of boring but important work. It's jurisdictional division. Then we're going to have some really tough issues. Do we believe that somebody should have the ability to move tens of millions of dollars in a perfectly anonymous way? That's a tough one. If you think of anonymity or even this idea of pseudo-anonymous transactions, that has been like a feature of these cryptocurrencies. But as you mentioned, part of the feature also could be illicit things that are going on as well. If you go too far, it could ruin it. But if you don't go far enough, it's just a lot of illicit bad things are happening. How do you get the right Goldilocks approach to it? As in so much in politics, Oren, I think if you start from the question of what's the perfect system, you're going to have a hard time <laughs> making, making headway. I always say, always ask the old Penny Youngman question of when he's asked, how's it going? The question is, compared to what? Let's start with where we are. Most people use some form of payment system, electronic yep. payment system. And today, the status quo is such that with all the Fourth Amendment protections, if the FBI wants to go to in front of a judge and say that we think that Jim Himes committed a crime, they can get my bank records. That's the yep. status quo. And unless you're doing a lot of work carrying around suitcases of cash, which is not a typical mode of behavior for most people, you live in a world where the government has access to your stuff. And we hope that judges show good judgment, et cetera. That's the world that we live in. If your argument is that we should create a new world in which there's perfect anonymity, that's a fairly radical point of view. And I'm perfectly willing to enter into that conversation, but I just want people to acknowledge that perfect anonymity is a beautiful, beautiful environment for terrorists, for money launderers, for human traffickers. So again, my best wisdom in how to approach this debate is let's start with the status quo and think about whether we can improve on it, not strive for some libertarian perfection or some security state desire. But the blockchain is a weird thing because the blockchain is a ledger that is not only available to the government, it's available to anyone. And it's available to every government and every person, essentially. Joe Schmo can actually go investigate the blockchain and see every single transaction through the history of time. Yes, the FBI with a warrant will have access to a record or something like that, but my neighbor doesn't necessarily have access to my records today. And if everything was on chain, then essentially the neighbor could re-identify everything. You can paint a picture of use cases where that's fabulously valuable. Anything that involves provenance, the whole title industry. Every once in a while, I'll talk to title people. You know, I bought a condo in DC mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Ascertaining title looks like it did back in the 19th century, right? And so you can paint user cases around provenance and about the moving of money in a very transparent way that could, in many cases, shut down things like bribery and that sort of thing. I think the key here is choice. If you don't want your neighbor 
to know that you're doing something that is whatever, okay, but culturally frowned upon, buying whiskey or watching pornography, don't pay on the blockchain. I think the key is lots of choice and people will choose. Look, I think this is what's going to happen with currencies. I don't imagine that a stablecoin or a CBDC is ever going to replace the US dollar or replace the traditional debit or ACH payment systems. But you know, there's probably a segment of people for whom it might be really useful. So I think the key is choice. Operate in the venue that makes you comfortable because there's going to be a lot of different venues there. On the CBDCs, for our audience who might not know what that is, it's essentially backed digital currency. I know that you recently released a major white paper a lot of people are talking about outlining that the U.S. should develop its own CBDC. Like, First of all, why do you think it's important? Why do you think we should be doing that? And then ultimately, what do you think the structure looks like? I'm far from religious on this. I'm not saying, oh, we got to do this. We got to do it now. I think we should continue making progress towards developing a CBDC, if for no other reason than everybody else is. The Chinese who worry me less on this, because who in their right mind is going to buy a Chinese-backed digital currency? But you know, the European Union, the UK, lots of our peer countries are developing, and I just don't want to be left behind. I'd hate to imagine that a sovereign-backed That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a sovereign-backed stablecoin, essentially. Unlike a commercially-backed stablecoin, you would have the full faith and credit backing a US dollar stablecoin or CBDC, whatever you want to call it. There can't be like a run on the bank, essentially. It's always tied to the dollar, always tied to, if the Switzerland does, it'll always be tied to the Swiss franc or whatever it is. And I imagine... Back to what we were saying about choices. I imagine that there is a market for that. I actually think, and I'm not going to paint myself as a PhD on the topic, but you know, 19% of the American population is either unbanked or underbanked. And when you talk to those people why they're underbanked, they don't trust banks. Just to give you one example, a Latino immigrant coming from a country where banks have been unstable or corrupt or whatever, doesn't trust a bank, or they don't like the banks because the bank charge lots of fees. You could imagine that in that unbanked or underbanked population, something with the security of a U.S. government guarantee that is a frictionless, low-cost medium of payment could be really attractive. And I love the idea. And this is really important. There are those who say, let's crowd out private stablecoins. I don't think that's wise. Or let's crowd out the banks even. Because if you and I are allowed to keep unlimited numbers of CBDCs and central bank digital currencies, we could crowd out the banking system, you know, in a 2008 situation. we could situation. do uh, free wires and we could do a whole bunch of other types of things. Well, even more than that is because it would be guaranteed by the federal government in a time of financial crisis, you and I might choose to move whatever wealth we have into a fully guaranteed. Remember, today in a yeah. bank account, when you take your money to a bank, you're guaranteed, but only up to $250,000 per yes. person. The way I've thought of it and the way our white paper described it, let's do it in a way that is complementary and provides a new choice to a population that may not be happy with traditional payment systems. The reason to keep doing it is I don't want to wake up one day and discover that the UK or the European Union or that Japan has created a central bank digital currency that is serving as a platform for all sorts of innovation. I don't want to lose that edge. And right now, the dollar is still the preeminent currency in the world. What you're saying is by doing this, this could help ensure that it stays the preeminent currency. I wouldn't make too much of that argument. 
the reason people hold dollars isn't necessarily because of their ease of use. It's because people have more faith in our overall yeah. survivability than maybe they do other developed countries. So I wouldn't and make certainly too in much the last of that. year or so, it has been a very good place to put your money. Sure. Look, the UK is in a lot of economic trouble. Germany's got its problems. And that's one of the reasons why the US dollar today is close to record highs. Anyway, I wouldn't make too much of that argument because people are always going to want to hold dollars. But again, it's more of the innovation argument. I continue to be intrigued, not to repeat myself, but that there is a population that is meaningful. Look, if it's 10% of the population, we're talking about whatever, 35 million people that might actually see some real value in a 21st century digital representation of a dollar, meaning backed by the government. They don't need to worry about the solvency of a city bank. That's my main reason for saying, let's not wake up one morning and discover that we're behind on something that could be really interesting and innovative. How would it work if you just think of the key things about a digital currency? One of them might be like the pseudo anonymous transactions, but the second one is the ledger. It's great to have this amazing ledger, but a US CBDC have a ledger that's available to everyone, or is it only available to the Federal Reserve? Or how would that actually work? My guess is that it would look like the current banking system. The banks that create a lot of money, how do they create money? You deposit money, they lend out a multiple of the money that you deposited. That's the creation of money. That is tracked through transaction tracking mechanisms, and it's shared broadly across the financial system. I don't think it's open ledger. I just think people don't necessarily want the world to see what they're spending their $100 every three days on. So I don't think it's an open ledger. It wouldn't be like Bitcoin, for example. But it is a really interesting technical question. Is it one big database at the Federal Reserve? Is it a distributed database amongst the banks that would be qualified to serve as clearers of a central bank digital currency? How would it be adjudicated? How do you see the impact of the present day crypto winners? Let's say there's a Bitcoin, there's Ethereum 10 years from now. How would the impact of the Bitcoin and Ethereum work in a more of an ideal world? Here's how I would hope it would work. Again, I'm always hesitant to have the government crowd out good public sector offerings. What is really the distinguishing feature of a central bank digital currency versus commercial digital currencies, you know, a stablecoin or a Bitcoin, which is unsponsored? The answer is the full faith and credit. People who just for whatever reason don't trust the banks, the system, et cetera, might say, but I do trust the US government. So where does that leave stable coins in particular? Look, I think Bitcoin's always going to have its adherence. Not clear to me who those will be 10 years from now. In my opinion, today, people buy Bitcoin because they see it as an appreciating asset. Maybe not so yep. much in the last nine months, but it's been a speculative investment. I don't think it's really getting meaningful use as a medium of exchange. Who knows what that looks like 20 years from now? So where does that leave stable coins if you have a central bank digital currency? What I hope the private sector would do would be to say, okay, there is this population that really values the sovereign guarantee. So we're going to build an exchange or we're going to build a product that is backed by that, but that it particularly appeals to particular market segments. I was talking about Latino immigrants earlier. What if you built something on top of a CBDC coin, full faith and credit, but it had services that were about remittances that were culturally and linguistically appropriate? I'm not an entrepreneur, so these are probably really bad ideas, but you can sort of envision the idea. So what about stable coins? Stable coins, I would hope, would choose to compete based on, they couldn't compete on credit, 
we could get into how does a stable coin from a credit standpoint differ from a money market mutual fund that brings back a certain amount of trauma <laughs> for me in terms of regulating mutual funds. But why not make Bill's stablecoin, which doesn't have a sovereign guarantee, compete on ease of use, on affinity programs, anything that somebody who is an entrepreneur could imagine a whole heck of a lot better than I could imagine. But the federal government wouldn't directly be in the business of attributes, of affinity programs, that sort of thing. There's been this idea for a while that the Fed should make a bank account available to everyone. And it should be a government-backed bank account with no fees and some sort of ease of use. What are your theories on that? I think that would probably be dangerous to the banking system. At the core of the banking system, of course, are deposits. That's what's known in regulatory parlance as tier one capital. It's the base of the pyramid. And if you take that away from the banking sector, you've got a real problem. Even more of a problem if you take it away in unpredictable fashion. Let's imagine again, it's 2007 and you're rightly losing faith in some banks. Do you withdraw all of your deposits and put it into your Fed bank account? You've now created a run on the banks that probably takes down a bank. There is another school of thought, which is I hate the banks. We hear that in DC. I hate the banks and fine, make them go away. I think that's naive for a whole bunch of reasons. Philosophically, I think the idea that the Fed would get into the business of retail banking would be a very dangerous and risky thing for the overall banking system. Here's where I get in trouble with my friends on the left that maybe hate the banks. You may hate the banks, and there may be good reason to hate the banks, but remember that our capital markets and our banking system is actually a critical national competitive strategic advantage relative to a lot of banking systems around the world. So let's be a little cautious about doing things that could really put the whole industry at risk. Beat up on them if you want, regulate them more if you want, but don't do things that could be, as the economists say, counter-cyclical and damage the system at the very moment that you don't want the system damaged. For people that have means, you could open a treasury direct account today. You can buy bonds that have three-week maturities. So they're basically extremely liquid. If you have an extra X hundred thousand dollars, you can go put it in there and transfer it there immediately from your bank account. The UI is not good. And there's a few other things that the government lacks, but there are ways to do that today. Yet there doesn't seem to be like runs on banks as much. Is it just because it's not well known or the average consumer doesn't think about it? Or why do you think that hasn't been the case already? I think you're right. I think it's a pretty niche thing. I don't think there's a lot of consumers out there who are thinking about opening a wholesale account with the Fed. I think it's pretty niche. There's also an ideological point here, probably would be more often articulated by the right. And let me tell you a story here. Two years ago, when we were trying to figure out how to get cash into the hands of the American public, either because of unemployment insurance or because people just needed cash, and we did, the logistics were brutal. The logistics were absolutely brutal. I mean, you were entitled as an American citizen below a certain income threshold to get cash from the government. Made sense at the time because we were in a pandemic and unemployment was huge. It occurred to me, wow, what if you had these national bank accounts? I thought, okay, that would be a great distribution mechanism. But if you're on the right, and I think this is a criticism worth taking seriously, you say, well, wait a minute, what else is this thing going to get used for? What if the federal government, the Federal Reserve decides that What the economy really needs right now is a negative rate of interest. For every $1,000 in your bank account here at the U.S. Government Central, tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to have $998. We've generally been pretty good about calling that a tax. 
rather than using it as monetary policy. So I do think it's worth grappling, even if it's more naturally something that's articulated by the right with what it would mean in terms of government power if every American had an account with the federal government. A couple of personal questions before we go. I know you sat on the first committee hearings about the UFOs in a very long time. What was that like? That sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, two things stick with me. Number one, there actually are a couple of incidents that we just can't quite figure out. If there's thousands of incidents, 90% of them, you can eventually trace it back to a weather balloon that goes up to 80,000 feet and changes shape and then comes back down. And most of this stuff is explicable, but there are a few. By the way, no, there are no aliens in Roswell. I mean, this is just sort of <laughs> data feeds that have been picked up. And we don't trust old Uncle Elmer on the post with his half empty bottle of bourbon to tell us what he saw. We're talking about stuff that gets picked up by the sensors on F-18s and that sort of thing. The national security people will tell you, probably not little green men. What they worry about, of course, is that maybe a technology developed by somebody that we don't know about. The other thing, and this is kind of funny, of course, the temptation is to go to Roswell and little green men, but it's actually a real problem for us because we need to destigmatize the whole topic. What do I mean by that? Not surprisingly, it is largely the military that sees in a compelling way. Again, it's not Uncle Elmer on the porch. It's the military because they have sensors. You have pilots up at 20,000 feet. Needless to say, when a pilot sees something or the sensors pick something up and he lands on the aircraft carrier and he wants to tell his buddies that he saw something, that is not a comfortable moment for him. So we really need to destigmatize this stuff and say, look, if you see something anomalous, no stigma, report it, because I don't happen to think that we're dealing with little green men, but we do want to be very, very sentient of technological innovations that we could get ambushed by. Now, one of the things I really admire about you is you're really one of the few politicians that seem to be truly interested in hearing all sides and even willing to change your mind. Why is that so rare in today's political climate? First of all, thank you for the compliment. I think the core of it is this. We have what I would argue is an antiquated model of leadership. Maybe antiquated is not quite the right word. There are venues in which commanding clear, short declarative sentences, not a lot of room for ambiguity are important. But I would argue to you that those venues in those times are pretty few and far between. A lot of them live in the military under combat conditions or Winston Churchill in the early 1940s. Too many of my colleagues are uncomfortable with the idea that leadership also involves listening. And by the way, admitting when you don't know. It's a strange thing if you're a member of Congress or a senator, oh my God, if I say I don't know, they're going to say I'm stupid and they're not going to vote for me. That's wrong. What they're going to say is, you know what, that congressman or that senator is a lot like I am, doesn't know the answer to what you know, the yeah. FDIC guarantee was 20 years ago. And that person is willing to say that he or she doesn't know. I really think, particularly at a time when there's a huge psycho-emotional gap between leadership and we the people, leaders need to make a point to be human, to listen, to acknowledge their own fallibility. And that will be a big step in restoring people's faith in political leaders. It's a good question because there's even like weird trivia. It's like it is expected that a politician will know the leader of all 193 countries and what their political system is. You just can't know everything that's out there. And it's not our job to know. 
if we had more time, we could talk about the distinction between a legislator and an executive. Those are different roles. It's not our job to know everything, right? We're not a star chamber. Our job is to represent. And how do you represent if you're not listening? Too many of my colleagues conflate their type of leadership with military leadership. We're not executives. We're not three-star generals. Even senators, they would deny this, but they're representatives, (laughs) right? Their job is to listen and to reflect the sentiment and the beliefs of their constituents in the Capitol. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I'm going to tell you something and admit that it's not original, but it's stuck with me. I watched a guy give a very funny graduation speech. He said, don't follow your dreams. (laughs) (laughs) And it struck me exactly as it's going to strike your listeners right now, which is, what are you talking about? Of course you follow your dream. I actually think, again, this is not original Himes philosophy, but I think that when you say, I'm going to be an NBA basketball star. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. I'm going to be the president of this bank or president of the United States. Nine out of 10 folks are going to live the span of their life and maybe not actually succeed in living their dreams. And therefore, and here's where the beauty is. This is really where the beauty is. If you're single-mindedly focused on your dream, which is something we really culturally celebrate, you miss what I think is the source of happiness for most people, which is what it feels like when your daughter brings home a report that she did really well on, what it feels like to grow a bunch of tomatoes in your backyard, what it feels like not to be president of the United States, but to make a real contribution to a local school board or to a local fire department. I think I'm going to live my dreams to the fullest takes you out of the venue where I think most happiness happens, which is in your communities with the people around you. Again, not an original Himes idea, but you and I are fortunate enough to live in a world of ambition and often satisfied ambition. I guess another way to put it will not take time out to smell the roses. All right. This has been great. Congressman Jim Himes, thank you for joining us at World of Das. I follow you on J.A. Himes on Twitter. I encourage our listeners to engage with you there as well. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much, Aaron. Take care now. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.